You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Zach Wharton, whose latest book is the lovely The Klondike from Drawn and Quarterly. Um, this is your first big piece of work, I guess? Yeah, it is. It's, um, I spent five years on it. I was uh, mainly just doing mini-comics before that. And um, Peter Berkema from The Beguiling suggested I try my hand at uh, history just because uh, it had done so well for Chester. So mm-hmm. I kind of, you know, so it, it's worked out well. And, uh, yeah, he, he basically was the one that got me started. He lent me Pierre Burton's book, and uh, which is also called Klondike, and uh, I kind of became obsessed with uh, the tales of the gold rush. So was did you have like a pre-existing uh, interest in it, or was it something that Peter could tell you would be into working on? Well, we kind of went back and forth with a few ideas, um, none of which you know really stuck. Um, but when he, when he lent me that book was when my interest was peaked. I had never really thought much about it before that. But uh, it was such an amazingly well-written book, and uh, the stories that he told, uh, so compelling. I don't know if you're familiar with Pierre Burton's writing. I kind of, I started reading a lot of his books after mm-hmm. I started that one. Um, and he's, uh, he's, he was amazingly talented. He was, in a, you know, he earned a national treasure, so. <laughs> it's very good Canadian of you. <laughs> so yeah. before that what was your minis like the focus of them um, it was all like black comedy it was all sort of like slice of life black comedy um, sort of like I was really influenced by um, Peter Bag's hate so I think it was a little too much in that sort of vein so I when I got the opportunity to do to work on something else, I I did, and I just sort of like left what I was working on unfinished, which I spent a lot of years on actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm it? gonna kind of gonna I'm gonna go back to that a little bit with my next book that I'm writing and drawing right now, and uh, while I research my next project, which will be another piece of Canadian history. Um, is it easy to go back to a project, or are you going to have difficulties with it, working on something that you'd been working on before undertaking such a big book like The Klondike? I'm actually, no, I don't think so. I'm looking forward to to working on something that's not as labor-intensive for the time being. I'm also going to make sure that it's considerably shorter. <laughs> <laughs> so, 337 pages was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. No, it's not a it's not a quick read. It's not a short book. Like you can tell that not only you know work went into the creation of it, but also I'm really interested about the research component of how you kind of weave together the different components that make the greater story. Right. Because. Um, like just, to, I just want to like be really specific, just in in, in how I see it, because um, where something like Louis Riel, it's a very it's a narrative, straightforward. You see what's going on, but uh, one thing I really enjoyed about the Klondike is that you don't know everything that's going on, so like there's little right. pieces that pop up here and there. So yeah, sorry to interrupt. That's a, no, no, no. Um, I. I was pretty. I pretty much knew how I wanted to tell the story when I started researching it, and there was just way too many characters, way too many people involved um, that I could have one person as the main focus. So I think sort of you know the backdrop <clears throat> essentially became the main character, and everyone else just kind of filled in the gaps, I guess, in a way. Um, yeah, but yeah, an ensemble was more what I knew it needed to be. And um, the more I read, the 
the easier it got. It was surprising how easy... When I had to edit the book after, um, I had no feedback. Like, the story was fine. I didn't have to change the story at all, which was amazing. <laughs> um, it was mainly people looking too similar that I had to go back and sort of redraw. But, uh, you know, I, research was was easy. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Surprising. A lot of people are not on board with that. It depends. Are like, yeah, I guess it does. You know, like, uh, for myself, I'm a history major, so I would like the research component, but some people, you know, can't be bothered to find out what the proper thing something would look in that era and just come up with their own abstract versions. Right. So, I don't know. It's all yeah, like... I totally get that. It's definitely um, not for everyone, the heavy research. <laughs> one of the fascinating things about the Klondike is... In one way, it's such a different reality. It's so frontier, um, you know, living hand to mouth. Another way, you realize it's really not that long ago, which I found really no, fascinating. Yeah. Like, just over 100 years. 1897, 1898, I think, is when the story takes place. Yeah, that's when the story takes place. I left out, an, I left out the last year. I actually, the, the original book was going to be 350-page books, but then we quickly, quickly realized that it worked better as like a, a single standalone, and I cut out a lot of stuff. Mainly stuff that I felt wasn't serving the story. Like, there was a lot of sort of comedic aspects to it mm-hmm. that I didn't felt, that I didn't feel fit the tone of the story I wanted to tell. Yeah, I, it, I could see that kind of being a disservice from the general tone where comedic aspects work well as far as kind of pushing further what you're saying, but can yeah. definitely take away and kind of push away from what you're trying to come across with the story of what was going on. Very true. Why don't you tell people a bit about the reality of 1897, 1898, uh, Dawson City? Well, Dawson was different from, especially like Skagway, Mm-hmm. Dawson was more, you know, I was obviously in Canadian territory, so it was less crime, um, more so when Sam Steele uh, became superintendent in 1898. He's, his, his nickname was the Lion of the Yukon, and um, he basically cleaned it up entirely. There was, like, virtually no crime. Um People obviously did struggle, live hand-to-mouth, but um, he made it in such a way that everyone sort of helped each other out. And there was also a miner's code at the time as well, where you never let your brothers um, go without. Like, if you had, say, two months' supply of, you know, food, and your, you know, next-door neighbor had, like, two weeks, you basically split up what you had and you helped out the other miners. Same with supplies, you know, if, if people needed help with their with their fines. Uh, <clears throat> so in that way, there was like a huge sense of community in Dawson at the time. Uh, Skagway, on the other hand, was basically like a lawless um, mining town. Mm-hmm. It's basically like a border town, basically. Um, the you know crime, prostitution, uh, murder was like you know daily, like murders daily. How close to Alaska was Skagway? Uh, Skagway was in is in Alaska. It's at the sort oh, okay. of yeah, it's the northern like the northernmost part that's sort of attached to British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically is on the border of like the White Pass Trail goes into that. Um, yeah. Okay. 
It's you... right on the other side. It's, it's just it's still far. It's still really far from Dawson. Like if you were on foot going from Skagway to Dawson, it was easily um, anywhere from between six to nine months on foot. So there was often children being conceived and born on the trail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then forty mile was that kind of whereabouts was that in relation? That's your other forty mile was just on the other side of of Dawson. So it was, I guess, on the western. It was on the western side of Dawson, if I'm okay. not mistaken. So it was it was north. It was it was far. It was not far from. Uh, from Dawson at all. What, um, did you, like, you did the book research, did you manage to go to any of the areas? Unfortunately, no, I haven't. It was, uh, way too expensive to get up there. Is that something you'd I, be... I, I would love to. I would love yeah. to go up there. I'm, I think the... I've been thinking about this for years now, and I kind of decided the time that I would most love to go up there, which was, which is when the, the ice breaks in the spring. Currently, it's thunderous. It's so loud. Wow. Yeah. And there's uh, lots of uh, great art grants to do work up there too. Yes. Like I think absolutely. Uh, Sonia Allers is up there, living off the. The Yukonian arts. Gilbert <laughs> <laughs> actually, his family has a writers retreat that I tried to get into a few years ago, but was denied. Uh, where you go to Dawson, where his family lived, and Pierre Burton lived as a child, mm -hmm. and um, you stay in their house for three months and write. And um, I can't think of a more amazing experience than that. Yeah. I think I should probably try that again now that I have a book out about it. Exactly. You have your uh, your piece of Canadiana yeah. to solidify your application. <laughs> <laughs> Whether or not they will accept it as a graphic novel, who knows? It's mainly prose writers that get up there, but I think I should be the one to break that rule. Well, you know, it's, uh, it is definitely changing. Um, like last night, I was at a Chester Brown's event in the Vancouver Library, and the audience there was not who I see at comic book events. Like there was, really? there was some like sixty-year-old ladies there that heard about him on CBC, and oh wow, yeah, it was like the oddest, interesting thing. It's like the same night as the big Canucks game, which was playing two blocks away, oh, and okay. we had this like great attendance there, and I think. Uh, I think we're starting to see a little more appreciation in other circles, so. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's true. I think Chester is large, Chester, Seth, mm -hmm. uh, Chris Ware, I think those guys are largely responsible for it being taken as seriously as it is now. And being in Drawn and Quarterly, you're in very good company. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty, uh, you know, I'm still pretty surprised by that. Pretty I, amazing. I'm curious how you got uh, signed for your first book being such like a, a big undertaking with them was it kind it's of a, it was actually not a very interesting story I was working on it I was um, I think it was in the, within the first month of month or two of, of working on it I had just drawn a few scenes and uh, uh, come up with a bit of story and uh, I took my, I took it to show Peter, working around with the big island, and um, Chris Oliveros happened to be in town for something, some sort of meeting or something. And uh, so it was sort of like this um, impromptu <laughs> meeting with us three. And uh, he seemed pretty interested, so he just told me to keep sending him stuff, so... I think this happened for about six months, and then finally I was like, uh, so what's going on here? And he's like, oh, we didn't tell you. Okay, so we're going to do the book. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. I'm down with that. Yeah. One thing that came out a lot because of Deadwood um, was a lot of kind of people riffing on the Western motif and doing, you know, the violent Western motif or the, you know, however it is. And I'm curious how you responded with your work, because, I mean, taking place in Gold Rush Towns, a um, little bit of different time period location. Yeah. And uh, But I, the thing is, I feel like it hasn't... Um, sullied your work like you're not trying to encapsulate that feeling like you're going for something different Some yeah I, I was pretty aware of it I mean I was watching Deadwood at the time too like when it was still on the air mm -hmm. and I knew that I couldn't go that route with the audience that I wanted to reach because I didn't want to just reach um adults I wanted you know sort of like to get some teens as well and you know the library market is pretty important these days as far as that goes um, so there was a lot I mean obviously I could have gone the total vertigo comics route with that and just make like an ultra violent you know western story but that's not interesting mm -hmm. to me I mean I love Deadwood Deadwood is one of my favorite shows but they used it effectively. Yeah. I Whereas just, things like there was a Vertigo had a Western series that was yeah. trying to sort of like play off that you know ultraviolet aspect. You know, it's like incredible racism and just like you know just badly done, basically. And I knew that I didn't want to do that, and I knew that I wanted to actually tell a compelling story. And I felt like there was no way that I'd be able to do that if I I went, you know, down the wrong path. So I was pretty I was really aware of what I wanted and what I didn't want and 
from the get-go. It, it seems like it'd just be so easy to just slip into that into that rut, and it's like the, the Vertigo example, I mean, you can just see where it just fails. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I wanted candidly. to... What's that? I'll speak candidly. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah, it wasn't a good, it wasn't a good series, I thought. Um, I can't even remember what it's called now, to be honest. Um, Loveless. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um. Yeah, I, and I don't mean to harp on something that I. I think the thing for me is like where where you're talking about, you know, that you you kind of have an audience in mind. Um, so are you looking at something like you would have read when you were a teenager? Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was a teenager, I still read some. I still do read some mainstream comics. I will not lie. Um. <laughs> But um, I was also getting into uh, eight ball and stuff like that when I was in high school. So I, I think that having something like this would uh, would have been great. Tell me about the uh, the artistic um, choice you did with this. Uh, you're mentioning you're doing stuff that was you know influenced by Pete Bag before, but this one kind of has more of. Um, a European feeling. I was drawing pretty much the same way. It wasn't as um, the style wasn't as sort of focused as mm -hmm. it is now, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, story-wise and humor-wise, you know, I, I was hugely influenced by Peabag and uh, a cartoon called Mission Hill which mm -hmm. only lasted a season and uh, I think it was on the Warner Brothers network or something like that it was produced in Vancouver was it really? yeah Rebecca Dart did backgrounds on it oh okay yeah. That's, I love that show so those were like two big influences so I I was kind of I was getting dissatisfied with what I was doing so this was a good thing to happen I think <laughs> give me some perspective not only just on storytelling, but uh, how to make comics. I mean, Chris Oliveros was, uh, you know, he had a huge impact on me as far as that goes. What were some pieces of advice that you'd gotten from him or any kind of, like, editorial squeakings that helped out? Um, it was more sort of like pacing uh, I can't it's off the top of my head remember because it was so many years ago but um, it was definitely like pacing and making sure that which I learned the hard way making sure everyone sort of had their own aesthetic mm -hmm. um, so I mean as far as that goes he had a huge impact mustache research Exactly. <laughs> that was another problem. Was everyone had beards or mustaches, and everyone could have dressed the same with hats and everything. So it was, it was crazy. <laughs> Trying to make everyone look different. You ever see the photos of the uh, people that the Deadwood characters are based on? Yeah. <laughs> They're not so pretty. No, some impressive mustaches, though. Yeah. I think Soulstar had the best one. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> Even uh, Bullock, he had the craziest mustache I think I've ever seen. It was gigantic. <laughs> On a human being, it was a crazy mustache. Fantastic. <laughs> um, when I was in Toronto for TCAF, I saw your window display at the Beguiling. Um very impressive um, tell me about planning out that piece um, and like kind of what you had in mind with it I kind of knew what I I mean I kind of when when I was talking about it with Peter and Chris uh, Peter Berkman and Chris Butcher um, I kind of immediately 
knew the photo that I wanted to use for, and I did use photo reference for that. Um, just to basically show exactly like the starkness and the um, how determined people were to get up there and the lengths that they would go to. I mean, climbing mountains. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> carrying, you know, hundreds of pounds, you know, bringing two months supplies, you know, it's, it was insane. So that was, you know, that was easy. And it didn't even take me that long to do. In fact, I have been commissioned to, by the guy, Chris Hutzel, who um, made that TCAV video. Did you mm-hmm. see that? Oh, it's beautiful. I was really blown yeah. away by that video. Yeah, I loved it. It was amazing. I was totally... Uh, he commissioned me... Sorry? I was just... I was going to say, I totally expected, like, some kind of really cheesy promotional video, and I, I watched it, and it was, like, amazing cinematography, you know, and it's just gorgeous. Yeah, it was beautiful. The whole thing was amazing. Apparently, they're working on a 10-minute version of that, too, Oh, now. man. I'll watch that. Yeah. But he's commissioned me to redo that window display. In. For his living room. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm currently, right now, well, not right at this moment, but uh, I am redrawing that eight-foot-long illustration. Same size? <laughs> Same size. I <laughs> 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 oh, no. I think I must be crazy sometimes. That's, uh, that's a big living room wall, too, to have the space for something that size. Yeah, no kidding. That's uh, that's commitment. Apparently, his um, his mom actually. I'm not sure if she's from there, but she crossed the Chilku. Like she actually walked the Chilku Pass. Oy. So apparently, it has a a lot of meaning Aww. to their family. So, yeah, I, I was very you know honored to do it. Have you gotten responses from folks like talking about? knowledge of what's going on there and how you interpreted it? No, I haven't heard anything yet. I don't think I've even looked on the internet for reviews. That's very cool. I have no idea what's going on or what's being said. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know many people who could attest to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I'm that interested. I mean, I'm not... I didn't make this to seek out, you know, praise. Mm-hmm. Did it because I wanted to do it and because I loved doing it, and I, you know, fell in love with the stories. So I was doing it strictly out of love. Reviews are gravy if they're good. <laughs> <laughs> How long did the um, the gold rush end up lasting? Like, start to begin or start to end. In the Yukon. About three or three and a half years only. It was a quick bust. And then it bust. sort of dried up. Yeah. Most of them I don't think lasted too, too long. There was one, everyone after the Klondike gold rush sort of like petered out. Everyone just went over to Nome and started trying to pan for gold there. Yeah, it was short. When I think you're around the same age as I am, so I'm presuming you probably watched DuckTales as a kid? Yeah. So was that an interest? Do you ever remember the Klondike episodes or read any of the Karl Bark Klondike comics? Yeah, I uh, I don't remember the cartoon, to be honest. But um, I picked up a few years ago a big um, Karl Bark's collection and uh, I read all that stuff. That was a genius, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm looking forward to the uh, to the collections coming out. Um, did that inform you how you were kind of approaching, or did it kind of give you like any kind of juice to use? Not really. Um, it was more just for fun. I, you know. It was great. It was amazingly drawn, but uh, I don't think it impacted how it was going to go about 
telling the story. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe because I wanted to take a serious tone. Yeah. I guess uh, a comic with ducks isn't very serious. Um, <laughs> pantsless ducks, I should say. Um, yeah. Did you go to art school or anything like that for art, comics, cartooning? Um, or was this just something you did as a, like, a little side thing while pursuing other stuff? No, I did go to art school for a couple of years. I went to the Alberta College of Art and Design. Um, I was in the drawing department there. Uh, it, I only lasted two years. In fact, one of my teachers told me there was no place for me at ACAD making comics. It's so terrible. I was like, screw this. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm paying you, I don't know how much money to do this. You're going to be a jerk. Is that the same place that Jillian Tamaki went? Or did she go to another university there? I have no idea. I was uh, there in 95, 97. Okay. So you're originally from Alberta? I'm originally from Saskatchewan. From uh, Regina, Saskatchewan. Then I went to art school for a few years, and I moved back, and I hated being back there, so I was, had some friends here in Toronto, so I decided to come out here. Were you conscious? And it's been great. Yeah. Toronto's a yeah. good cartooning scene. Yeah, it's amazing. Did you know much, so much of here. much of the Saskatchewan cartooning scene at all when you were there? There wasn't really much of one. Yeah. I don't know how it is now, but... Uh, well, I know at a certain point, like, Dave Collier was there. Oh, that's right. And uh, I previously mentioned Rebecca Dart, and she lived there with her husband, Robin Bougie. They were there for oh. a while. Yeah, as far as I know, I'm not sure what it's like now, but when I was there, there was... I don't know, there was probably people doing something, but not that I was aware of. You're kind of working on your own with yeah. whatever you can get into. So how did uh, moving to Toronto change as you or help you develop as a cartoonist? I was, uh, I kind of quit doing comics for a few years. I was playing music and I was doing a lot of uh, rock, rock posters. Um, I just kind of got dissatisfied with what was going on, I think in my life, <laughs> mainly. So I kind of, you know, wanted to have some more visceral experiences. Um, so when I moved here, I discovered the beguiling and how much amazing stuff was actually out there. And that inspired me, basically, to, you know, pick up the pencil again. <clears throat> and, uh, the Beguiling has been hugely supportive of me and what I've been doing over the last, I don't know, eight or nine years. So, <clears throat> yeah, Toronto was definitely the right decision. Mm -hmm. Well, it's nice to have such a supportive place to go to. Oh, the, yeah, the, the community here is, uh, is incredible. I, I forgot that you were in the Wowie Zonk, so I didn't get a chance to read it because it's buried in a box somewhere. So that, but that's like <laughs> an example of uh, just like how involved the Toronto scene is. Um, yeah, it's amazing. So many people doing really amazing, interesting stuff. It was uh, that first night I was in Toronto. I guess apparently uh, I was out for dinner with DeForge, and he had to go do something, and he said he saw you and Michael Como up front. The beguiling, yeah. and it was like just all I think this I was stuff happening. Working that night. Uh, well, it was a busy week in Toronto that week. <laughs> yeah, it was. I'm at the Forge, something else, too, man. Oh. That guy's incredibly talented, and he's so young. 23. I know, it's insane. We were, <laughs> we were uh, talking to him about, like, you know, just how ahead of the game he is for a young age, and he's like, oh, shut up, guys, shut up, guys, and 
Chester Brown was there, and he's like, no, seriously, I was nowhere near what you were doing. <laughs> oh, man, yeah, I was so far behind where he is. My guy is incredible. He's got, like, a work ethic that is enviable. It's amazing. And he's so supportive. We love you, yeah, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we do love you, Michael. <laughs> One, two, three, bop! So what's tell me what the next project you're working on? Is this also for Drawn and Quarterly? Uh, as far as I know, I'll be doing hopefully books with them in the future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one that I'm working on now is kind of just in the beginning stages. I don't know how badly I want to talk about it, but I know definitely what I'm doing for my next. Uh, piece of historical fiction. I'm going to tackle the uh, Halifax explosion. Oh, wow. Yeah. Why don't you uh, educate our uh, international listeners on what... I'm was. only just beginning to do research. I think it would probably do a disservice to <laughs> the, uh, the actual history of it for me to go into any sort of details. But I do know that a freighter exploded and wiped out the whole north side of Halifax. Around what year That's was about, this? Uh, it was during World War One. I. I think it was 1917. Oh, okay. It collided with another boat and uh, basically docked, I think, or became I don't know I don't know all the details I'm like I said it was a big explosion <laughs> not a in Halifax yeah during the first <laughs> world war yeah <laughs> well at that time there was a lot of uh, a conflict around that area too I remember going to Newfoundland and uh, seeing the uh, the batteries there for the bunkers. yeah so stuff was happening in the Atlantic it's true <laughs> <laughs> Was that something that you had read about before and had interest in, or had you been researching different things you would like to cover? I've been thinking about doing other stuff. I was debating doing something on Passchendaele, but I didn't. I kind of decided that I didn't feel like drawing muddy trenches for <laughs> a couple hundred pages. Uh, but it was actually... Um, my friend uh, Matt Forsyth's girlfriend Ashling was like put the bug in my ear and I was like you should do this so it was actually in, during TCAF where I kind of made the decision and I did a little bit of reading and I was like this would make a great story and I kind of wanted to do 
different periods in Canadian history for uh, for storytelling. Just so there will be, as far as I know right now, there's going to be. It's just going to. It's going to be a trilogy, but that could change. It could end up being more. So this is just the, Canadian history. Just the last TCAF. Right? This was just the TCAF like two the weeks one, ago. Yeah, that just passed. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah, that is. So that, this is like really fresh. Tell me about being a Canadian cartoonist and why that's important to you, to to represent that Canadian aspect. There's a lot of really amazing and interesting stories that people, I think, in the general public don't know about, and even I don't know about. So I think it's uh, it's really important to expose people to, you know, the history of this country, because it is really interesting. It is for a young country, so much has happened. So I think that's really important, and I think having that Canadian identity on a more international scope is immensely important. What do you see as the Canadian identity? <clears throat> or oh, how, wow. How do you see yourself within the Canadian cartooning identity? Let's go with that. Wow. Um, Am I being mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... Um, oh, wow, that's kind of a big question. Uh, it's something... I, Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say it's just something that like I've kind of had talks with um with folks around and folks with like with Jeet here like he had posted about kind of the Canadian national or nationalist Canadian cartoonist or I forget how exactly spun it um and I was having challenges with it because he's looking at you know kind of this Ontario centric persona of you know Chet Seth and uh you know, around, and yeah, Collier that's a bit. True. Um, and, and for me, I was having a challenge with that because I don't see that as the central Canadian identity within cartooning. Um, and so as a Canadian cartoonist doing Canadian work, um, how do you see yourself fitting in kind of a larger scope of Canadiana, maybe? I think, um, like I was saying before, telling you know, Canada's history. I, I mean, I've lived all over Canada. Um, you know, most recently Montreal. And I, I think that, uh, not, you know, being exclusive, obviously, like I don't, as much as Toronto's my home, I don't consider myself the you know, obviously, strictly on an Ontarian, mm -hmm. just because it's not where I'm from. But I mean, it's I don't have like a a home home. Um, I don't know, man. That's uh, <laughs> sucks. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was my curveball question, I guess. It was for me. Um. I guess uh, part part of that is also, um, how do I put this? How do I want to put this? <clears throat> this isn't good for radio. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for editing. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> I guess yeah. I, it, I'm interested in seeing like a varied voice within Canadian comics, and and maybe. Um, Oh no, my my thesis statement isn't completely worked out right now. There we go. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that you know, telling various parts of Canadian history from all over Canada is, you know, sort of what my identity as a Canadian cartoonist is. Not being focused on just one thing. Like I want to, I don't want to just do history comics. You know, I want to, I want to dip my toe in the mainstream pool. You know, even. I was, uh, I did a panel at TCAF specifically. It was, I think it was called Mainstream Canadians Working in the Mainstream, and right. I found it really fascinating that most of the folks on the panel um, 
didn't weren't kind of into specifically saying or including any kind of Canadian aspects within their mainstream work. But as we got to talking, I don't know if they realized or not, but we really there was a lot of Canadianisms that worked out of their work. Right. But they were still kind of reluctant to say, you know, we're Canadian cartoonists making Canadian work, even if I'm doing. Why is that? Do you think? I don't know. I don't know if it's a sense of like some kind of Canadian shame or not wanting to be typecast. I guess not wanting to be typecast. There is no Canadian shame. Right. Um, <laughs> I think Jeff Lemire is a really great example of that. Yeah, he wasn't on that panel, unfortunately. He's one. I wanted him on there to discuss that um, because I mean he he his work he's unabashedly Canadian and it's all kind of absolutely you know and I think uh, personally there's nothing wrong with it and one of the important aspects for me with this show is to make sure that we do cover a significant Canadian portion without having any right. expectations of CanCon <laughs> <laughs> there are so many uh, amazing cartoonists in Canada Exactly. I think I went on too much of a rant there. I'm sorry. No, no, that's great. <laughs> well, Zach, thank you um, for joining me today. It's It's been a pleasure. Um, just for listeners to remind, I've been talking with Zach Wharton, and his book is The Klondike from Drawn and Quarterly, a very pretty uh, gold writing on the cover <laughs> to, to add to the uh, a nice subtle touch. I guess that was That's, uh, the fine work of Tom Devlin. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic designer. Um, and I look forward to whatever else you have coming out. Um, I recommend people reading the Klondike. So, thanks, Zach. No, oh, thank you very much. Shimmy, 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 shimmy.